Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of the Black Case Diaries. Yay! Hey. Hello, hello. How are you guys? I'm Adam. I'm, I'm here with. Oh, I'm Marcy. <laughs> I'm Robin. <laughs> I jumped the gun a little there, guys. Yes, you did. I'm just too excited about this. Too excited, yes. So welcome everyone back to our animation series. Yay! Ta-da! Last week, we ended on a high-ho note with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. This week, we're continuing to look at the development of other major animated film studios. Yeah, and we're going to look at them through the lens of a specific event. Oh, yes, absolutely. There was a time when Walt Disney Studios ruled over all others in terms of animation. Even as other studios created valuable work, Disney was constantly thought of as the leader in animation techniques and innovation. It was the studio to work for as an animator, and no others seemed to rival it. But all fairy tales must end, even for Disney. Today we are talking about the Disney Exodus, an event that took place over the course of a few decades, but ultimately occurred in the late 70s and early 80s, when animators left the studio to pursue other projects, taking their skills and ideas with them. Before we start discussing the exodus, let's take a look at the Disney era. Yeah, so it's really, I think we should, before we talk about that, we're mm. going to have to, as a reference, take a look at what Disney was like at its absolute peak, right? Last week we, right. we talked about Snow White a little bit, and now we're going to talk a little bit about the stuff that came right after that. And just to put into perspective how big Disney really was. Huge. Yeah. <laughs> the time period of 1928 through 1941 is often known as the Golden Age of Animation. To some, it's also called the Disney Era. During this time, there were more technological advancements in animation than any other time period. To put it into perspective, this era starts with Steamboat Willie and ends with the breathtaking Fantasia. It only took Disney Studio 12 years to make these advancements, and the world took notice. Ooh, it's a pretty Jeez, short amount of time. Yeah, Seriously. I, I don't know about you guys, but <laughs> Steamboat Willie is very, looks very different than Fantasia to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's kind of funny that it's these two things, you know, Steamboat Willie being famous for its innovation with sound and synced audio and all that stuff. But then Fantasia is basically just that. Yeah. Plus animation, right? It's just the music and it's just making this the these pieces of music animated and come to life. And it's like the culmination or the pinnacle of what Steamboat Willie was. It's important to recognize that part of this achievement came from Disney's willingness to sacrifice profit to make his films the best they could be. Nice, man. <sighs> what a time. Those, yeah. those are the days. <laughs> one, of, one example of this is the skeleton dance. Disney could have easily stuck to making Mickey cartoons, but his ambition led him to show audiences a glimpse of what animated storytelling could be. This was a mood piece, vastly different from the thousands of cartoons that audiences were used to, and it planted the seeds for Fantasia and other films to come. Hooray, love the skeleton dance. Yeah, the skeleton dance is really neat, and it actually wasn't even Disney's idea. Oh, yeah? Yeah, there was an organist that Disney knew, and it, he came up with the idea to do the Disney, to do the skeleton dance, and it makes so much sense, because cartoons up to this point were really kind of chaotic and didn't really follow storylines. It was a lot of slapstick <laughs> a lot of <Yeah>. random, <laughs> you know, just jumping around, hopping around, doing things. Basically, animators just wanted to show they could do stuff. Very and, bouncy. Yeah. And uh, to use classical music and animate stories to classical music is a great idea. It makes a lot of sense. And Disney took that idea, and then he made his Silly Symphonies, and then he finally made Fantasia because of this idea. Every piece of classical music, I mean, not every, but a lot of them, <laughs> has a really good story behind it. Right. While Disney was focusing on realism, other studios continued to animate in more cartoonish style. 
Because animation is an incredibly broad topic, we will talk about the studio cartoons some other time. Maybe not this Absolutely. month. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, Tom and Jerry, Bugs Looney Bunny. Tunes, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll talk about them some other time. Throughout the 40s and 50s, Disney's studio experienced its silver age with classics such as Peter Pan, The Lady and the Tramp, and of course, Sleeping Beauty. Aww. <laughs> Hooray. Even if the stories or characters seemed flat at times, it was the animation that lifted them up. In Charles Solomon's book, Enchanted Drawings, he describes this scene with Maleficent's dragon in this way. Maleficent hurls herself across the sky as a glittering pinwheel of fire, landing before him in a burst of flame. She shouts a wrathful invocation in her commanding voice, and the chartreuse fires that surround her explode into a mighty column of flame, higher than the turrets of the castle. The black form of the sorceress, darkly silhouetted against the fire, twists and elongates. The shadow waxes and solidifies as if evil itself were coalescing in that inferno and becomes an enormous dragon with a terrible horned head and glowing yellow eyes. Beautiful. Yeah. It's as, it's as if you did one of those close your eyes exactly, and imagine. Yes. I love oh, yeah. that. Yeah, I love the way he describes that. He was trying to drive home the point that, you know, animation up to this point was entertaining, but it didn't seem real. People yeah. didn't really feel like they were experiencing anything when they were watching it. But when they saw Maleficent turn into the dragon, it the, the, it was so masterful that they just it was they felt like they were actually watching it happen. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, y- you think about just imagining it you know close your eyes and imagine this what i picture is just straight up sleeping beauty it's the animation of this this mastery that disney's animators demonstrated in scenes like this is the reason that the studio became synonymous with animation over all other projects they were attempting at the time Disney is responsible for elevating the standard of draftsmanship and their realism and animation was unparalleled no other studio came close to having their influence. For a while, Walt Disney Studios was the king of animation. Oh, yeah. People listening right now, if you're listening to this right now, you might be getting kind of glimmers of now. You might be thinking, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure much has changed since then. Right. Disney, it, but it's different now. They're they're a leader in kind of everything. <laughs> So now I'm going to talk a little bit about the Disney strike of 1941. When we talk about the Disney exodus, we often mean what happened with the studio in the early 1980s. But more studios were born from disgruntled Disney animators than we might realize. Remember how we said that no one rivaled Disney's influence? Well, one studio came very close. United Productions of America, or UPA, challenged Disney's realism and incorporated social commentary. Not to mention, they infused experimental graphics in their work. So this is awesome, because not only are they making something that's pretty good, not maybe not quite on the level of Disney at the moment, yeah. it's pretty good, but they're also experimenting, and they're adding graphics, <laughs> which, Ooh. I mean, graphics, it wasn't, it wasn't an animation yet. They, they just put, they started putting it in, and it was really groundbreaking stuff. Oh yeah, and I'm yeah I'm happy for it because <laughs> there's a lot of cool stuff that probably wouldn't be around because you know Disney likes to stick to what they stick to and that's just the way it is. So right. if there weren't yeah. any if there was never anyone else around to do it, then who knows? Exactly. Today we know of UPA for its most popular character, Mr. Quincy Magoo. Aha. In the early 1960s, UPA created the first animated Christmas special, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Yay. Love yeah. that one. Yeah. This one keeps popping up here. It sure does. <laughs> we've talked about it a lot in our show, but we've never actually done an episode on it. No. Someday, maybe. In 1941, there was a strike at Disney among young men that were interested in the graphic arts, and they thought that animation could be used as a tool for social reform. They were unhappy with the res- with the restrictive academic style of drawing at Disney, with familiar fairy tales and an emphasis on humor. 
One member of this group was actually Bill Melendez, who would one day be responsible for bringing Charlie Brown to life in A Charlie Brown Christmas. Well, what a coincidence. It's it's always Christmas, isn't it? Always. Anything important or anything that has ever mattered has to do with Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) These animators eventually formed or joined UPA, which won an Oscar for the short Gerald McBoing Boing. Have you guys ever heard of that? (laughs) Gerald McBoing Boing? I it rings a bell. I, I haven't seen this. Yeah. It rings a boing boing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It uh, is a story by Dr. Seuss, and yeah. so the short the short is pretty interesting. Nice. <laughs> it's about a little boy who who can't speak, but he he only can make sound effects with his mouth. Oh. oh. Yeah. Yes, and he eventually gets a job at a radio station. Nice. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Cultural critic Gilbert Seldes described UPA. Every time you see one of their animated cartoons, you are likely to recapture the sensation you had when you first saw Steamboat Willie, the early Silly Symphonies, the band concert. The feeling that something new and wonderful has happened. Something almost too good to be true. Wow, man. That's high praise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it it really was. It was so different. (laughs) It, and it was it was really honestly it is quite magical. UPA had its own style, but it's important to note that it wasn't as uniform as Disney. You could see the different influences from individual animators and the varying degrees of light to heavy subject matter. They even did a short on the Telltale Heart. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I Guys. mean, and it's and this also reminds me of Pixar because you know Pixar has a style. Obviously, right? Mm-hmm. People people talk about the Pixar formula and the way their stories are. But if you notice that if you have a Pixar movie directed by Andrew Stanton and then you have one directed by Pete, Pete Docter, they kind of look different. They have different mm-hmm. tones. Yeah. And yeah, different subject matter. You know, like, for example, Soul is coming out soon, someday. And... We have Onward that just came out earlier, and those look very different. Very styles of animation look different. Yeah, Yeah, the tones feels very Mm -hmm. different. Yeah, Yeah, you could almost mistake it for not Pixar. (laughs) Almost. Yeah, almost. This uh, Telltale Heart short Robin sent to Adam and I, and she in her message she was like, "You don't have to watch the whole thing, guys." I watch the whole thing. You, you <laughs> yeah, just you can't, can't stop it. Like mm-hmm. it's it's just so good and so interesting. So yeah, maybe, it, maybe it, go check that out. It, it's wonderful, and I'm really glad that they went with this different influence from individuals kind of mentality. You know, it it's really interesting to do it that way. You kind of see how different people influence it. You know, and it comes out either kind of the same or completely different who knows you could have something great right Right, you know not to not to say that the disney formula doesn't work because it obviously does but you know it's really cool to have these different these different aspects of this these animations that could you know hit or miss it's it's a fun fun uh thing to to see columbia shut down the animation house in 1949 and sold it to producer henry saperstein he, took, he turned it into a TV studio. And that's how we got Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol because they ah. just started to make work for TV instead ah, of so they film. put it onto TV. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So at least they kept going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In some form, at least. Yeah, exactly. So all that still happened. UPA and all of that. And I, you know, UPA, it's a shame that it closed down or, you know, because it was very close to having the influence that Disney did. Even though it was very different, even though it wasn't nearly as commercially as successful as Disney, it was showing people different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, Disney would never do something like the Telltale Heart. Yeah. Yeah. No, That's it for wouldn't. sure. It wouldn't. I mean, SpongeBob or, 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 might, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So this all happened during, uh, you know, the really, the Silver Age of Disney. But... We're going to now talk more about what happened after. Yes, and it ended quite abruptly, 
unfortunately. The death of Disney caused a shift in the studio, as would be expected, you know, when somebody, somebody this influential passes away. Uh, the films made by Disney leading up to that point were the work of many different creative people, but all stemmed from Disney's vision. The films were somewhat uniform, with a signature style and storytelling that animators were not able to vary from drastically. They had to stick to that Disney formula, you know. Variances started to appear in the following years, however, known as the Bronze Age or the Dark Age. Ooh. So, yes. uh, I, I, I say we prefer to call it the Bronze Age because yes. <laughs> it's not, it's because the Dark Age makes you think that, oh, these movies are all terrible. Yeah, you know, which bronze, is completely untrue. Yeah, and Bronze Age signifies third place i mean you yeah. s- you still placed okay yeah bronze is still pretty good you're you're still in the running you're yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely yeah think about all the people who didn't even get on the podium disney's death ushered in new leadership that struggled to fill his shoes i mean you can imagine that yeah mm-hmm. the company and its films would never be the same Walt Disney died on December 15, 1966, and he left behind future plans that carried the company for a few years under the supervision of Roy Disney. The Jungle Book and the Aristocats showed that the company could still make great animation. They, they still knew what they were doing. However, it was not the same dynamic company that it once was. The Jungle Book was considered to be the end of the Silver Age, mostly because it was the last film that Disney himself touched before he passed away. Yeah. Yeah, they say the Aristocats is... A lot of people consider the Aristocats to be the beginning of the Bronze Age. Yeah, That's yeah. sad. <laughs> I like and, the Aristocats. A lot of people do. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I really, really like the Jungle Book, too. Even though it's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, wimbly-wambly. All over the place. It is. The story, the story does meander a bit. Kind of, yeah. kind of aimless, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's a lot of fun, and yeah, Aristocats is great too. But you know, d- during this time before his death, Disney was really focusing on uh, some other things besides movies, right? Disneyland had opened fairly recently, and he's working on his his next big thing. But Roy did make sure that that Florida project would come to fruition in 1971, but Disney's other idea, Epcot, never came to be in that way. Epcot as we know it now is not at all what Walt had in mind. That's actually kind of what the movie Tomorrowland is about. Right. Oh. That's a good point. Tomorrowland yeah, they... is much more like what, it's, what he had in mind. Mm-hmm. Which actually, if you if you've seen Meet the Robinsons, when they, he goes forward into the future, it their land is called Today Land <laughs> <laughs> instead of Tomorrowland. Right. That's amazing. That's wonderful. I love it. But yeah, if anyone didn't know, Epcot uh, stands for Experimental Prototype City of Tomorrow. So mm. Walt's idea was actually like to have a working city that people would actually live in that had just all these future aspects to it. So anyway, as far as the movie business from the late sixties on Disney survived in a very lackluster way. There are even rumors that the company would have broken up and been sold. Could you, could you imagine? Um, uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> a world without Disney would be completely different. I mean, who, who, I can't even imagine what it would be like. Right. Mm. But because the company had leaned so heavily into theme parks and live action films, when Walt's creativity was gone, there was very little magic left. This was the feeling for many for almost 20 years. Wow. That's a long time. It's that's, a very long time. That's a long time for people to be to to say, "Oh, these movies are fine, but we don't have anything <laughs> else." So, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that is so that's a, that's quite some time to do that, right? But yeah, you have to really feel for Roy. Oh yeah, I really do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can't you can't blame him for this because, like I said earlier, Walt was really focusing on the parks at the time he really wanted 
Disney World to happen. So, yeah. you know, wanting to fulfill your brother's last wish, I totally understandable. Right. It's a shame. So, really you, so you can't blame him. He did his best. I mean, he he kept the he kept the business from from being sold and and broken down, so Exactly. That's true. With all of that, Disney kind of going into decline. Now we enter a time with somebody new. Yes, we do. In 1971, Don Bluth was hired as an animator at Disney. Disney had been gone for five years, and the studio had been putting animation on the back burner, so to speak. Live-action films were financially successful, and animation cost a lot of money to produce. Gone was the fearless leader that didn't mind losing money for quality and new advancements. Oh... Oh, we miss you. What a, what a shame. <laughs> yeah. Losing the art of it. Mm-hmm. Many of the animators didn't question their work, but because he actually first started working for Disney in 1955, he had seen the way the studio worked before Walt had died and longed for that leadership. That makes a lot uh, of sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just, you know, this whole idea of, you know, things not really being the way they were. And then all of these, you know, we're going to talk about the exodus and how all of that happened. And all of that makes so much sense. Oh, yeah. Everybody kind of kind of saying, look, you know, things could be better. Why don't we make them better? Why don't, why don't we do? Why don't we try? You know? Yeah. And just reading this, it kind of it reminds me of that scene in Return to Oz. Oh. And I know it's completely unrelated. But it reminds me of that scene when Dorothy goes to back to Oz and she sees the yellow brick road and it's all destroyed. And Belinda, the chicken, says, whatever, whatever. Yes, okay, we're in Oz, who cares? Yeah. And Dorothy says, you don't understand. This was the yellow brick road. And it, it just reminds me of that because, oh yeah, yeah, you know, just like, you don't understand. Everyone says, well, this is just the way it is here. And Don Bluth says, no, you don't get it. It didn't used to be this way. You know, why is it this way yeah. now? Yeah, yeah, I I can imagine that. Like, especially if he was very close with all the people there, mm-hmm. or even with Disney himself. You know, mm-hmm. you can imagine wanting to go back to that, being so yeah. happy in in the way it was, and then just changes without yeah. out of your control. It sucks. Yeah. yeah, having this nice path, and then now everyone just wandering aimlessly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which makes sense when that Bluth said in an interview with Steve Henderson that everyone was asking, what would Walt have done? Which is a strange thing for an artist to say. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Bluth worked on Robin Hood and the Rescuers and stayed on at Disney for eight years. But one detail that bothered Bluth while animating the Rescuers was that they were instructed not to paint the whites of their eyes because it would cost too much money. <laughs> I actually want someone to please remaster the rescuers, but put whites in all the characters' eyes. Yeah, yeah, I've got to see what it would look like. I have to know. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's so much more alive for some reason. <laughs> yeah. I, I need to know how that would have looked. I need to watch the whole thing. Don't just do one scene. I need the yeah. whole... <laughs> the whole movie. Whole I movie. mean... I mean, it it kind of works with mice, but yeah. you know, it still still probably would look a lot nicer. I wonder, I wonder how much money they saved cutting yeah. that, like just how, not getting the paint that they needed for that. Yeah, yeah. How much would it have cost? You know, <laughs> I, to do yeah. just the whites of their eyes. It's yeah. interesting. Enough that they uh, <laughs> enough that they decided to cut it. Yeah. So. Don't spend yeah. money until you see the whites of their eyes. So. Yeah. <laughs> But I never will. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In the 1970s, the nine old men, the men known for animating Disney's Golden Age films, were, re- beginning, were beginning to retire. Okay. So, in case you're unfamiliar, there are these nine mystical, mythical men that used to animate all of Disney's old movies in the Golden Age. They're just known as the nine old men. Yep. And 
they were very good at what they did. They made really, really beautiful movies. But then all of those secrets kind of seemed to disappear when they retired from Disney. So there was no mentorship. And as these men left, so did their secrets of creating beautiful animation. Uh, I, <sighs> yeah. So I, I can... I can kind of imagine it happening where, you know, they're working on a movie or they come across something difficult or or whatever. And the other animators working there would say, oh, just let one of the nine guys do it. Right. They'll figure it out. They'll make Mm -hmm. it look good. Not, you know, not even imagining that they would ever be gone. Just that's just the way it is. There's these nine guys. They'll fix everything. But obviously they're going to be gone eventually. Right. Well, And, like, imagine this. There's no mentorship, right? So what's really happening is that instead of one of them taking an animator under his wing and saying, okay, I'm going to have you watch me direct this movie, and you can see how the direction process works and all, instead of that, what they're doing is they're they're still directing the movies, but then they walk up to each animator and say, okay, you animate this, you animate that, and they each do one small piece of the movie. So oh, yeah. no one else sees the full process yeah. of what's going on. So essentially what I'm hearing is an assembly line. Yeah. And you take one of the people that <laughs> is in that assembly line that's doing one particular task. And then you're <laughs> like, hey, hey, don't just do that. Now, now I need you to direct yes. all this other part. Exactly. Like, it's an, ima- like imagine you're working in a car factory <laughs> and you've been in charge of mufflers for 25 years. <laughs> But And that's all you've known. And then one day, the guy who actually builds the car walks up to you and says, hey, I'm retiring. You get to build cars now. But well, I don't know how to build cars. It's like, well, yeah, but you've worked in the factory for 25 years. How do you not know how to build cars? It's kind of that situation. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. I couldn't imagine. <laughs> yeah. So... This loss in trade secrets bothered Bluth, as the studio didn't seem interested in relearning them. Bluth and fellow animator named Gary Goldman knew that they would be expected to take leadership roles in the coming years. So, in order to get directing experience, they started their own project in Bluth's garage, called Banjo the Woodpile Cat. That sounds like a great... Thing. Yes, it was <laughs> yeah. a, it was a theatrical that. short. I'm sure it's on YouTube. Maybe we can find yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Don Bluth described it. We would look at this old stuff, such as the beautiful water in Fantasia, and ask Frank Thomas, one of the nine old men, how did you do that? And he'd say, I can't remember. Did anyone write it down? Little things like that would keep happening, and we realized we were losing the war with art. So we went out and pioneered again to see if we could discover what they had forgotten to tell us. Oof. <sighs> that is hard. Yeah. A- I can't. I mean, what you go to one of them thinking they'll remember they're the best. Yeah. They they're the greatest there ever was or whatever mm-hmm. and they'll figure they'll let us know and they don't even remember. It's like yep. that's got to be the most disheartening thing ever. Yeah. It it's why have we lost so much information about animation? <laughs> <laughs> But you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. we have. We've Hold lost on. a lot. I really feel like someone should just be keeping track of this. <laughs> yeah. Let's make sure we don't lose it again. Because yeah. from all this history that we've been reading, it really feels like the whole history of animation has been three steps forward, four steps back. <laughs> so, <laughs> then, oh. You yeah. know, everything just keeps getting lost, and then they have to start things over again. And, yeah, it- Man, I mean, think about from the time of Gertie the dinosaur, right? Yeah. yeah. About last last week, if none of that information had been lost, how how amazing could animation be now? Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <sighs> I guess uh. it's just this perpetual game of patience. For <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Lots when and are, lots of patience. When, when are they gonna fig? When are they gonna forget how to make? Um, Movies like Frozen too. Oh my! <laughs> now have to start over again. It'll be like Chicken oh, Little no. all over again. Oh no! Oh I, no! I, but that's kind of probably what it was like. People saw things like Gertie, and then, <laughs> and then they didn't say anything like Gertie for years and years. Yeah. They're like, "Wait, what happened to that?" Although I think we'll forever be finding copies of Frozen 
in yeah. lots of places. <laughs> yeah. True. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like my niece's house. There's mm. probably at least three copies alone. Exactly. There. There's there's always one in the player. There's one in the case. And there's <laughs> one, one unopened. There's one in the car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the soundtrack somewhere else. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The men used their own equipment and Bluth pulled animators from Disney for help. Some claim that this project caused a division between the animators and the studio, while Bluth maintains that the atmosphere at Disney was already toxic. He says that no matter how much he tried to bring the heart back to Disney Studios, the corporate side only wanted to make money. He says, We left because the corporate structure was just too calcified and we couldn't fix it. We knew that they would be angry when we left and call us traitors and everything else, but we knew we had to. To try to resurrect what was beautiful and what Walt believed in, and so that is why we left. You know that that's that's just awesome. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. thinking about what he would go on to do, I'm like, yes, awesome. Kick yeah. kick him to the curb. Show him how it's done. <laughs> you know, right. You know, it's it's that's definitely a very tough decision. You know, oh, just, yeah. you're, you're working yeah. for Disney. A very, a very stable job. Mm-hmm. You're, you're probably not gonna just get booted out unless you do something wrong or you get too high in the company. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you get asked to leave, which we'll cover. <laughs> which we'll cover that in a minute. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, in animation, why would you not want to work at Disney of right. all places? That's yeah. what all the place. other animators are saying, right? <laughs> All yeah. the other ones are, that just accepted their job. Like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, e- even if Disney's not in the greatest place, they're not making the best hard-hitting movies, but, like, in the public space, maybe, it's still like, yeah, Disney is Disney. Look at what they can do. Right. right. Mm-hmm. So, God, that's got to be – that's a tough decision. Yeah. In September of 1979, Bluth and Goldman left Disney. They took 16 animators with them, delaying the animated studio's current projects by a year. Wow. They were working on The Fox and the Hound at the time. Uh, Oh. And, uh, you know, that delayed it by a year. And and I do want to say that it sucks that, you know, for the people that they left behind. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, that had to be, that had to be so just... I'm, I can't imagine, you know, suddenly yeah. you're really behind schedule and yeah. and that that had to be so hectic and that just had to suck. So I definitely understand when people say he was a traitor or whatever, or that it was, you know, all about egotism and stuff. I, I mean, I could, I imagine why they feel a little burned in yeah. this situation. Yeah. Yeah. Their goal was to create a studio that rivaled Disney Animation in such a way that Disney would work harder to bring heart and soul back to the animated films. I actually read that uh, Goldman said at an expo that he remembered when they turned in their resignation letters and Don Bluth said, maybe this will encourage you to work harder. Hopefully you'll try better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some, man. And he said, you know, how naive and uh, egotistical that was to, to th- <laughs> you know, to think that, you know, us <sighs> leaving was going to be the kick in the pants that Disney needed. But I don't know. I mean, well, yeah. the stuff they did next maybe kind of helped yeah. a lot, actually. Bluth and Goldman's first full-length animated film was The Secret of Nim an animated treasure that was tonally and visually darker than anything Disney had produced at the time. The film was a major success for the studio because it showed critics that the small rival studio could compete with an animation giant such as Disney. It was, however, a commercial failure. Uh, Sad. Boo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, but, I mean, it was awesome looking. Yes. At least that. And it yeah. kind of brought back that classical style. Everyone, people are saying, sure. there's an animated movie out about mice <laughs> that isn't by Disney. Yeah. Like, what? That's Was, impossible. <laughs> you guys do know there are other animals, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, competition brings out the best. That's right. It does. A New York Times article said of the film, it's just this old fashioned look. Rich, 
fully detailed, opulent, and painstakingly achieved, that Messrs. Bluth, Goldman, and Pomeroy have sought to recreate. And in this respect, The Secret of Nim is something of a technical and stylistic triumph. Ta-da. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I and think I think it's on um, Amazon Prime at the moment. Yeah. Ah, that's awesome. Go check it out. It's so nice that there were movies that rivaled Disney because then yeah. now there are different stories being told mm-hmm. and different things for people to see. My sister Rita really likes The Secret of Nim. And when she was a kid, she was so moved by it. It wasn't even just the animation. She yeah. was moved by the mom and how, yeah. you know, the sacrifices that she made. In the mid-1980s, Bluth teamed up with a man named Morris Sullivan, who stepped in just as the studio went bankrupt, and they formed Sullivan Bluth Studios. Sullivan saved the day by investing in the studio. Without him, we wouldn't have films like The Land Before Time or Anastasia. Thank goodness. Yes. Thank you, Sullivan. Thank you. (sighs) Yeah. What a hero. (laughs) (laughs) They, I mean, because I, you know, we want to point out, you know, it was scary. Bluth left Disney. That's a scary thing to do. But also, he was not immediately successful. You know, they made The Secret of Nim, and it was a good movie and all, but they didn't make money, and they were going to go bankrupt, and that was going to be it. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, you can't, you can't forget. Even though we don't like Disney's attitude towards it, you can't forget that animation still is really expensive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if oh. your if your work doesn't pay you back, then you can't do it for long. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Just as Sullivan Bluth was surging back, famed film director Steven Spielberg approached the studio in the hopes that they could make an animated film. This was even worse news for Disney, as they were losing their place as the leader in animation. Ha-ha, Together, take that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Together, Sullivan Bluth and Steven Spielberg made made an American Tale the highest-grossing non-Disney animated film at the time. It even beat Disney's current release, The Great Mouse Detective. Yes. Which is a wow. good movie. Honestly, yeah. very, very, very good movie. Which is a very good movie. movie. Yeah. 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 And it wasn't... Honestly, in no respect, really, was it a failure. Mm-mm. The Great Mouse Detective made money. Yeah. It, it wasn't mm-hmm. like a flop, like some other Disney movie from that yeah. era that, <laughs> that we're going to talk about in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great, but but an American tale is just mm-hmm. something on a different level. And you have to, you know, also you have the songs in an American tale that really elevates it. Oh yeah, oh, those yeah. songs, yeah, yeah. And Dom DeLuise, and oh, Dom. <laughs> what a great voice there. Yeah, Disney started working to get their footing back with animation, but nothing could stop Bluth and Goldman from making more successful films throughout the eighties and nineties. Spielberg's success with Bluth also led him to create his own animation studio, Amblin, with releases like We're Back and Balto. Yay. Both yeah. very good movies as well. Um, yes, yeah. I guess, you know, Spielberg had, like, some kind of dino kick going on. Right. I feel that. <laughs> yes, uh, We're Back came is, is an animated movie about dinosaurs showing up in New York City. It's really sweet. I yeah. love it. And it came out in 93, <laughs> which is the same year that Jurassic Park came out. Yeah. And, and, and also Dinosaurs the same year. taking over in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The same year I was born as well. So it's like, you know, got this whole thing going on. Dinosaurs are my jam. Born yes. in the year of the dinosaur, 1993. Yeah. Right. According to the Adam calendar, 1993 <laughs> is the year of the dinosaur. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> that it is. I also just I love this story. The whole the whole thing with Don Bluth because just the idea that if they hadn't done it, we wouldn't have these movies that people are very passionate about and oh, yeah. influence a lot of people. Adam, do you think that you would care as much about dinosaurs if the <laughs> land before time didn't exist? Yeah. You know, probably not. I mean, as much as I love Jurassic Park, when I was a kid, I was not as set on the action or some really intense moments of those movies, right? But yeah. there was mm-hmm. there was still that dinosaur movie, uh, Land Before Time, and all of those many, many sequels after that to keep me occupied until I was, you know, brave enough to handle more Jurassic Park. 
Right, right. And in mm-hmm. Jurassic Park, there are these kind of, I don't know, they're really cool looking, but they're scary, and it's a thriller, and yeah. and that's really interesting. But then in The Land Before Time, you connect with these characters, and you have this really strong emotional connection to dinosaurs because yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, the- there's two very different feelings about dinosaurs. <laughs> right. They, they, they are the main characters. They talk. They are just kids trying to to get through this intense crazy world right yeah so you can relate to it on that level and it's you know thank goodness it exists right (laughs) okay the last time we met disney we were last time we were talking about disney things were not going well it was the 1980s. <laughs> Things were falling apart a little bit. Then Don Bluth went ahead and kicked them while they were down and took a bunch of their animators. <laughs> and so now we're going to talk about what happened kind of at the same time, but then directly after. Right. When uh, the animation studio was falling apart, some of their best animators quit. The production was delayed. And some feared that it was the end of Disney. Uh, yeah, impossible. <laughs> In came Michael Eisner as CEO and his partner Frank Wells as president. You guys know those names, right? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. You remember, you remember Michael Eisner <laughs> from? Uh, Hi, I'm Michael Eisner. <laughs> yeah, Disney's Halloween treat. Yes, I, I, I think I just heard that, and then I went to go get a soda. Yeah, yeah, that's the part. That. That's the part where all the just kids' eyes away. glass over. Yeah, <laughs> nobody, all the kids sit down to watch cartoons, and then none of them, none of them want to see like. The the adult guy coming yeah. in the room. Like, I don't care yeah. about no you. No one cares about him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where's Mickey? Get out yeah. of here. Yeah. Where are the cartoons? <laughs> I want some animation. But these two could see the untapped potential that Disney still had and set about revitalizing the company. Despite their initial efforts, Disney saw one of its darkest moments with the Black Cauldron. It was a financial and critical failure. Not only had the studio lost respect in the animation world, average moviegoers were looking at Disney a little differently. Man. And it's a real bummer (sighs) because that movie rocks. That movie is good. There are definitely issues with it, and I totally understand why it didn't do so well at that point in time. You you, You know, think about The Lion King. We, we see Mufasa get brutally murdered via stampede. Spoilers. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then, and then you know, that's rated G. So yeah. <laughs> this, this being a PG movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh. We, we talked about it all the way back in our uh, underrated Disney movies mm-hmm. episode. That was like, mm-hmm. oof, that was ages ago now. Right. But yeah, that movie is great. And let me just say... Princess Alanwi deserves to be in the official list of princesses. Like, yeah. come oh, on yeah. now. I don't care if the movie didn't do well. She's a beast. She didn't need no man before any of these other new princesses didn't need no man either. <laughs> and I think she deserves a spot. Yeah. Yes. But imagine how we feel right now about Disney animation, right? When we see a Disney movie coming out, we all expect it to be amazing, good reviews, smash box office records, but this was not the case back in the 1980s. When the studio was staging its comeback, a new film was set to go into production with animator John Lasseter to direct. Lasseter approached the powers in charge and pitched for a film that was a combination of computer and hand-drawn animation. Get some of that newfangled tech in there. According to Lasseter, they were not interested in the idea since it would not cut any costs. They seemed to only want any new process if it increased cost efficiency for the project, which is lame. Yeah, super lame. Boo. That's not what Walt would have wanted. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, for real. Come on, guys. Did you stop asking yourself what would Would Walt Walt do? do? Come on. WWWD. Yeah. <laughs> After that meeting, Lasseter was fired. No. That sucks. Oh. He was then hired full-time at the Computer Division Graphics Group, an early name for Pixar. Hell yeah. Yay. 
we're talking about studios that were born out of Disney because of dissent in Disney. And obviously Pixar at this point is still owned by George Lucas and, you know, it would, you know, be acquired by Steve Jobs later on. But so that studio wasn't created by John Lasseter and it wasn't created because he got fired. But there definitely was a huge influence in Pixar because of this happening, because of John Lasseter getting hired on full time and, you know, becoming such a big part of Pixar that wouldn't have happened if he didn't get fired. Oh, yeah. Much of the team that worked on the Brave Little Toaster would go on to work at Pixar as well. Some consider it to be the spiritual prequel to Toy Story. Yeah. I could absolutely see that. Yeah, you've got inanimate objects with all their own personalities. They, you know, they're very attached to an owner. They go to try to find that owner. Yep. Uh, I never thought about that. Yeah. yeah. Very yeah, similar. They- some of the world rules are the same too. Like they can't be in the same room as the person while moving around, you know? Yeah. So, so the same idea that your toys are alive right now, but they just can't move because you're in the room. It's the same thing with your toaster. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> so now that we've talked a little bit about the eighties and what, what happened there and Disney is kind of, you know, sort of on their way back on the upswing kind of coming back a little bit so uh, the next part we're going to talk about i labeled it lack of teamwork makes the dream works <laughs> <laughs> i love that so much <laughs> i guess mostly because i hear uh teamwork makes the dream work so often yeah <laughs> I, I love it oh yeah oh yeah but this time it was the lack yes lack thereof lack thereof <laughs> In 1984, Michael Eisner hired Jeffrey Katzenberger to run the animation studios. During his tenure, Katzenberg put Disney animation back on the map and created what is known as the Disney Renaissance. It's important to note that animation was not the only thing that made the films of the Renaissance so successful, but it appeared that the studio was returning to its roots. Before the release of The Little Mermaid, the studio was closer than ever to shutting down. Yeah, there's yeah. a nice yeah, there's a nice little documentary called Waking Sleeping Beauty. And if you can find it, I suggest watching it. It's about this time period when they were trying to bring back the magic of Disney. And it wasn't just about, I mean, they definitely needed to make more money. That was a given. But it wasn't just about making more money. They they wanted to find what it was that struck audiences so much with movies like Sleeping Beauty and the Silver Age of Disney. So they, you know, that's what The Little Mermaid was. You know, mm-hmm. that was their attempt at kind of bringing it back. And I'm sure Katzenberg was a big influence on making those movies great. But it was the teams that really, you know, the teams oh, of yeah. people. As, we could, as we've seen, and all of this has been evident of it, you can have the most talented people on your team as as possible. Mm-hmm. And Disney always has yeah. had, you know, an unlimited resource of talented people. But if you don't have a good leader, I mean, you, you yep. might, I mean, yeah. it, it's not going to work out. I mean, look at the Bronze oh, Age we just talked about. Right. Yeah. Producing what some call the best Disney movies of all time, such as The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and The Lion King. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) During this time, Frank Wells kept the peace between Eisner and Katzenberg, being essentially their counselor as well as their colleague. Disney was doing so well that Katzenberg naturally wanted to advance his career within the company. There was a back and forth as to whether Katzenberg would be leaving the company before the end of his contract or not. There was also a lot of discussion about the amount of money he would be given or giving up if he left. I mean, I can't totally blame him for wanting that. I mean, look at the rap sheet he's, you know, partially responsible for. Right. Yeah. So. Katzenberg has said that Eisner promised him the position of president if Wells ever left the position in pursuit of another job. According to Katzenberg, he said, if for any reason Frank is not here, you are the number two person and I want you to have the job. 
But unfortunately, when Wells tragically passed away due to a helicopter accident, tension came to a boil between Katzenberg and Eisner. Eisner made the decision to eliminate the position of president. <sighs> that bitch. I know. He, ba- he, he basically <laughs> took on the role of president as well as CEO. And he Jeez. forced Katzenberg into resignation. He hired two people to take his place, Joe Roth and Richard Frank. And I, I mean, that's what happens when you get high enough in a company. Mm-hmm. You don't get fired. Nah. No, you get asked to leave. Yeah. <laughs> it, it would look too poorly on the company's <laughs> reputation to have you be fired. Right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you, get, you get forced to resign. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Katzenberg, though, at least later sued the Disney company, and that cost them $270 million. (laughs) But luckily for us, once he was let go from Disney, he formed a studio called DreamWorks SKG with David Geffen and Steven Spielberg, all all of whom called Eisner Machiavellian. I mean... I mean, yeah, as they said it, not us. I mean. Yep. <laughs> now, that was pretty dramatic. But this is where the story gets even more interesting. Oh, How? man. Right. But wait, Can there's more. Imagine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> According to Steve Jobs and John Lasseter of Pixar, they had pitched the movie concept for A Bug's Life before Katzenberg left Disney. So at this time, Disney and Pixar were kind of working together. Disney had contracted Pixar to do some work and they had, you know, already done Toy Story. Or at least they were starting to work on Toy Story. They had contracted for at least one movie. And so now, you know, they, they came from Pixar to pitch to Disney another full-length an- uh, computer animated movie called A Bug's Life. Katzenberg still claims today that he knew nothing about their pitch. His claim is a little hard to believe since DreamWorks' first movie was Ants. Which had a very similar storyline and name. Yeah. <laughs> sure. He knew. It, it's definitely <laughs> suspicious. That's for sure. He didn't hear a thing about the <laughs> Obviously not. Recently, some new light was shed by Chris Weitz, a director behind Ants. In an interview with HuffPost, he said, We didn't know that there was much of a race to the box office until late in the process, he explained when it turned out that there had been a fake schedule, which had us completing after A Bug's Life was going to be released. We'd been working on this accelerated, working at this accelerated pace without really exactly knowing why. Wow. So DreamWorks had, yeah, they put out this fake schedule, (laughs) making it look like ants would come out after A Bug's Life. Jeez. (laughs) There's some sneaky business going on here. Yeah, Yeah, that is... Ants ended up beating A Bug's Life to theaters by just over a month in 1998, but made less in ticket sales worldwide. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, there's one thing about Pixar that they do right is taking anything, really, even mm-hmm. something as like kind of icky <laughs> as a bug and an ant, and making it look likable and right cute mm-hmm. enough to... to to hold your attention and kid friendly and all that stuff. Yeah. You know, even mm-hmm. even the grasshoppers are, you know, not too much, right? Yeah. But then ants, um <laughs> I I think it leaf left a little bit too much of the creep factor <laughs> yeah. in. And yeah. uh so it kinda has a different vibe going it's, on. It's so different. It's more adult. The jokes are more grown up. Yeah. And like the dialogue is more grown up. I know there are some funny funny moments like when there's a there you know they go to the picnic and the food is wrapped in plastic and there's there's some sort of invo- invisible force field around the food. You know, I, I oh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that part for sure. But I feel like yeah. you your family was creeped out by ants. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I liked it more later on, but it was definitely creepy. The style of it was much yeah. grittier and darker, but I just remember the the main villain being like incredibly Well, they creepy. had they have termites in ants oh, and those are That's right. Horrifying. Uh, yes. Right. Uh, yeah. They, yeah, I just remember it being yeah. 
yeah. my I mean, gosh. Yeah, I mean, the main characters don't look <laughs> great, so you could imagine the villains don't look Right, with, like, their great. sunken in cheeks and <laughs> yeah. their, I don't, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, but, I mean, it was definitely way too much of a coincidence that... Oh, yeah. But the thing is, you know, when they founded DreamWorks... They did. They didn't want it, it. It's crazy to me that they made a computer animated movie first, because you know this is you know Bugs Life was Pixar's second ever computer animated movie, and so this is you know so then this is like the second ever full length computer animated movie to be released was Ants. Yeah, and it's so strange to me that they even did that first, mm-hmm. and that, that's why I feel right. like it's way too suspicious. While working on Ants, DreamWorks had also been working on what we would say is their crown jewel. Released just a few months after Ants, The Prince of Egypt was a project Katzenberg had wanted to do for a long time, but that had not been able to undertake with Eisner at Disney. So when he left, we talked about this in our top 10 animated yeah. movies episode. And, uh, you know, we went into much more detail about the movie itself. But at the time, yeah... Katzenberg really believed in this project and this was this is what he wanted to make. This is like yeah. when when he found out he was getting fired, this is the <laughs> first thing that popped into his head. I want to make a movie about uh, the Exodus, about the 10 commandments. I that's what I want to make. And I think it's funny that the movie's about the Exodus, isn't it? Yeah. In yeah, in was, this and yeah. you know, in we're, we're talking about the Disney Exodus and then they're making a movie about the actual Exodus <laughs> yep. in the Bible. But it's he, what's really funny is that when I was doing some re- research for this, I would type in Disney Exodus and it would actually come oh, up with yeah. the Prince of Egypt yeah, even though same. Disney didn't make it. It yeah. just pops up and yep. I'm like, "Oh my gosh." Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? That's so it's so fitting. Yeah, he, he wanted to make a movie about the Exodus so bad that he even <laughs> yeah. lived through one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, since its beginning, DreamWorks has shown us that it can and will compete with Disney with the Disney machine. They have produced such memorable movies as Shrek, The Road to El Dorado, Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron, and Madagascar. All wonderful films. Yes. I mean, everybody, like... Shrek alone being one of the, like, animation staples now. Katzenberg said in an interview that their mission statement is that they make movies for adults and the adult that exists in every child. Oh, cute. I love that. I think that's... It's perfect. It makes sense. He, you know, if the measure of success is fulfilling your mission, then they're successful. Because Mm -hmm. that's exactly... That's exactly what they're doing. They're, he knows what they want to do, and they're doing it. And I think that's really great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I love, I freaking love Spirits Die in the Cimarron. Yeah. Oh, love it. so good. <laughs> yes. And I feel like children watching it do, it's, you know, yeah. it's appealing to the adult and the child, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. If the Disney Exodus teaches us anything, it's to recognize our own talent and worth. Imagine if these people never spoke out about their ideas. These men picked a battle with a giant, and because of that, we have a much more diverse catalog of animation today. That's yes. so, so awesome. Yeah. I'm so glad because, we I mean, none of these movies would exist, and that would be a real shame. Yeah. You know, this this whole thing paved the way for all the different studios that we have now. Eventually, we would see, you know, Disney's kind of going through its second renaissance or second gold age some people would say but um i think without some of the these other studios it may have just petered out at you know around tangled maybe something like that or 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 anything past tangled may have been very similar samey kind of stuff but they had to keep going they had to keep getting better because they had these other studios showing them what what happens exactly in the fight of Disney versus Bluth or Katzenberg, neither side could be declared triumphant. Instead, the audiences that get to share in animation and storytelling are the winners. That's that's exactly right. Yep. Absolutely. Yes. So, you know, this, you know, say what you will about all of this and, you know, the backstabbing and the egos <laughs> and all this crazy drama, but it's honestly so much better for us as the mm-hmm. audience that this stuff yeah. happened 
because then we have we have more and we have different stories that are inspiring us. I mean, we're not all going to love the same thing. We're not all going to yeah. be inspired by the same thing. It's so important to have a diverse group of things to pull from and to watch. So I think that's a very important chapter in animation. And I'm Absolutely. glad we covered it today. Yeah. yeah. And that is going to be, I think, a case closed. <laughs> but thank you guys thank you everyone for listening we we very much appreciate it um you can follow us on many things yes twitter mm-hmm. at black case diary at black case diaries podcast on instagram um we have a patreon we would love it love it love it if you check out the patreon patreon.com slash black case diaries you can also get there through our website black we have all of our old website or sorry our old episodes there too the blog posts with lots of cool stuff including those uh that telltale heart short we mentioned earlier let's go check that out um and you can check out a red bubble store as well we've got some merch up there if you want it um that's redbubble dot com slash people slash black case diary so thank you so much for listening we appreciate you as always yes thank you so much happy animation april yay hooray bye bye